Welcome to Civil-ish. My name is Johnny Bird. I am so happy that you are here again today. First thing I wanted to share before we even get started, it's the holiday season. I'm going to take a little time off just like you are, and I'll have another episode out after this one in 2021. But before we even get to that, the holidays, we've got a great interview for you today with Sarah Becerra. She is a learning professional who's been at it for a number of years now. And she's also the founder of Sarah Becerra Consulting. We're going to talk about social justice. We're going to talk about learning and performance. And some of the other things that she is involved in surrounding these issues, diversity, equity, and inclusion. We even talk a little about intersectionality and what the heck that is. It's a good conversation. Come along. Welcome to Civil-ish. This is the podcast about respecting the differences. And today we've got a fantastic guest on, Sarah Becerra. She is a people lover and inclusion pusher, and she helps build cultures of curiosity, belonging, and intention. Just a disclaimer out there, I've known her for quite a while. We used to work together, but now I've been watching her a lot on LinkedIn and other platforms. So I'm very excited that you could be here today, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Johnny. Let's get started. My first question, and it's my favorite first question that I ask of everyone to kind of break the ice and to maybe delve a little deeper. And it's this, who are you and what makes you, you? Ooh, isn't it the most loaded question? (laughs) It really (laughs) does require some some self-reflection, but there just like all of us, I wear so many different hats. And I think it's all of those hats coming together that influence my perspective in the spaces and places that I occupy. So as you mentioned, I am a self-proclaimed human lover and inclusion pusher, which basically means like I want us just like you to be able to come to a place where we can reach mutual respect, where we can create safe places for all humans, not just the ones that made the decisions way back in the day. And I've been in the learning industry, the learning and development field for the better part of the last decade. So a lot of my work has been with corporate America in designing effective training and learning programs. And more so in the past couple of years, you're seeing more and more conversation come around diversity and equity and inclusion. What does that mean? And how do we make it happen? And so I use my unique perspective, having gone into many, many companies. I was a learning and performance consultant for a while with some of the world's leading organizations and seeing how no one really has a full understanding of the scope of the problem and how do we start to make headway into creating more safe systems for people that have not always had equitable advantages. So what makes me me, what got me interested in this work? So the learning piece was a natural segue into looking at the culture and the system of organizations as a whole. And then my personal identity is very much influences these conversations. I'm mixed race. My dad is black. My mom is white and I'm white passing. So looking at me, you wouldn't know I'm multiracial, which is what we're seeing more and more of in our society. What are you is not really an appropriate question anymore, but (laughs) nor is, um, nor is it easy to tell anymore what people are. So we need to drop assumptions. And I feel that every day in in having to raise my hand and say, 
yes, I am a woman of color and yes, I do straddle these two spaces. So I, I feel the, the advantages of being white passing. And yet I know the, the long centuries old oppression that my people have faced. And then I'm a mom. I have two daughters. They're seven and 10. And so a lot of what I do and how I aim to be in this world is as a model for them uh, to stand up for themselves, to stand strong in their power, to know that they can go after whatever they want. And then I am a part of the queer community. And yet I was in a heterosexual marriage for close to 10 years. And now I'm in a same-sex partnership. So being the norm as far as sexuality is concerned and then coming out later in my 30s, that's also very interesting because I feel myself, compared to my partner who came out in her teen years, I'm way more outspoken. I'm way more like, this is not okay because I didn't have to deal with the ramifications of coming out as a younger teen and all that comes with that, the layers that come with it. Now we're having safer spaces, but it's still not safe everywhere for everyone. And that's what I'm working on. So that was a long-winded way of saying those are all the things that really influence and inspire me to keep after this work day in, day out. One of the things you said there, and I, I think you got at it, but I want to make sure that I understand it. You said getting at the problem. So is that the problem that there's safe spaces or where there's more, there's further to go to make sure people are included? That is the problem. Yes. Okay. And the policies that were designed to protect, they were designed by white people for white people, included in our policies and our workplace systems. In every place where systems exist, there's some major retooling that's needed. Could you provide an example? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we live in a nation that was a conversation we're all having finally um, and has been going on for years, but centuries <laughs> at least. We, our nation was founded without, without many, many voices included at the table. And yet we have refused to really look at these systems and how it disproportionately affects, for example, the black population in terms of equitable housing, access to housing, generational wealth. Um, we're, we're seeing more segregation now. I want to fact check this. <laughs> Dak Shepard has a podcast called Armchair Expert. And at the end of every podcast, they check all those facts. I'm going to ch- fact check this, but segregation has increased in hyper-segregated se- hyper schools where lower income communities that are disproportionately black and brown have way less access to federal funding, to um, state funding as far as their schools are concerned. So education is not equal. And then that sets you up for the rest of your life or lack thereof in that if you don't have access to a good education in youth, uh, it impacts you for the, for the rest of your days. So there's these big systemic issues. And then when we look and go down into corporate, corporate America, into companies, we're seeing that companies are starting to wake up to the fact that diversity is important. Diversity of thought, diversity of experience is important. I don't like to just narrow it down to diversity of identity, but it's all incredibly critical. But how do you do it in a way that doesn't just 
create tokenism within your organization. And we're seeing that you see it every day on LinkedIn as, as far as I'm the token black person and now I'm overseeing the DEI committee with no extra pay, no no incentive to, it's it's strictly because I am the one woman of color or person of color and now this, is, this falls upon my shoulders. And so it's continuing to play out even with the best quote unquote of intentions. We're still seeing it not done well. You've said an awful lot there, but that one last thing that you said about being the tokenism and being the woman of color and now overseeing DEI, that makes me want to ask you about intersectionality and activism. It was on a website with a group that you're affiliated with, so I wanted you to talk about that a little because it feels like intersectionality really demands that, almost demands tokenism in so many ways. Hmm. Uh, well, so let me, so you mentioned, I'm, I'm with Women's March San Diego. That's the organization that I, I currently took on the vice president role. And I've been with the organization for a little over four years. And that more than anything has really been a great learning and unlearning of how you do this work and how you do this work in a way that is inclusive, not divisive. And one of those big concepts that we we hold very dear is this concept of intersectionality. And what intersectionality essentially boils down to is the idea of taking into account all of who you are. Kimberly Crenshaw was the one, the person who originally created this term, intersectionality. And basically it's, it's representative of you are not just one thing as far as your identity. You're not just a, a black person. You're not just a white person. You may be, there are multiple f- parts of your identity that may be either creating advantages or disadvantages and looking at the whole picture, not just as the oppression of you as a black person, but also as a woman, as a part of the disabled community. Like how do all of those identities tie together to either grant you privilege or to grant you disadvantage. And there is not equal, there's not equality in, in terms of you're just as disadvantaged as this person. But the main point of intersectionality is to make sure that you're looking at the whole of the person of the experience and, and starting to work towards dismantling all of those discriminations and disadvantages. Okay. Uh, one of the things I've never quite figured out on intersectionality was the idea of the people that have various touch points of, what do we call it? Uh, the various parts of their lives or identities that, let's say, work against them in this society. Do they have more right to speak on the adversities of life than the people that only, say, have one or two? If you have more uh, adversities, does that give you more more of a platform to speak, more authority because you're more aggrieved? That's an interesting question. I don't know that it's that easy to define. It's more so everyone's just fighting for an equal, equal playing field. And just because you're disadvantaged doesn't mean you have to use your voice to be at the forefront of that fight. And just because you are advantaged doesn't mean you have to be an influencer and influence 
thousands of people. You can do it from your kitchen table. You can do it in the spaces that you occupy. And yet we, back to the concept of tokenism, we don't want to put that burden on anyone's shoulders and we don't want to discredit anyone that, that doesn't have that discrimination because they have a voice too in, in their communities and they can make positive impact with the people that look like them and beyond. But how are we each and every single one of us using our voice to make a difference and create that, that equitable playing field from, from birth? So as the Women's March San Diego seeks to engage in intersectional education and activism, what exactly are they doing? So we, it's, Women's March was born out as a response to the outcome of the 2016 election. It was the largest organized protest in history. I can't remember the number worldwide, but there were many, many, not just the U.S., but many, many countries came together to protest uh, women's rights to choose, women's access to equitable, equitable treatment as far as men are concerned, compared to men. And the evolution of Women's March, we're about to go into our fifth year. January will mark the fifth anniversary of the first March. And what the lens is now, it was really started as a response, but what is it has evolved into is a central place for very specific action and very plentiful education. So we seek to be an educational organization, helping people understand the ways they can make an impact, the issues at hand. We have eight unity principles that really guide our our work, uh, including civil rights, disability rights, ending violence, environmental justice, immigrant rights, LGBTQIA rights, reproductive rights, and workers' rights. And so that's a whole lot <laughs> to be working against. And so our education focuses on those unity principles. Our action focuses on moving those unity principles and the, the equity in all of those spaces. And so just this past weekend, we Women's March San Diego has partnered with a larger entity, Women's March California. And this weekend was our day of action for text banking event wherein we texted 5 million voters. The goal was 5 million. And I think we got a little bit, we surpassed that in the span of two days, but helping them know where to vote, know how to vote, know the specific policies in their states, how the ballots are coming to them, where they can track their ballots. And so it's become education, action. And then the third goal of Women's March is to really amplify those that are doing the work in our community the voices of those that are boots on the ground alongside of us, our community partners, and making sure that people know about their actions as well. That is an awful lot that you're It is a lot. There. I think you said you said eight unity principles, is that correct? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and that that's exactly where the intersectionality comes in. You're not just a part of the queer community. You are that civil justice civil rights comes into play, the disability rights, ending violence. Like you're not just one thing. And so we can't just fight for one thing. We can't just say we're fighting for women. We have to boil it down to specifics. And so we don't lose sight of our mission and all of the things at stake and all of the, the ways in which women can and people can be adversely impacted by 
systemic policies that we are fighting to change. Mm -hmm. We'll move on to something else in a quick second. I just had a quick question. Is Women's March San Diego, is it a big tent in that, let's say somebody wants to be involved, but they don't like unity principles two and five, just for example, uh, is it kind of an all or nothing or is it like, okay, you can still come on? I don't think we've ever had that issue, but okay. I was just if wondering. it were to come up, I would I would ask some probing questions, some framing it with curiosity, but I'd love to know why and see see where the conversation goes from there. And there that doesn't mean you have to be out there fighting for every single one every day, but it is a part of our mission, so we need volunteers to be on board with our mission. But if there's there's a sp- specific unity principle that calls out to you more, you can certainly focus on that one and do the work there. There are plenty of organizations we can connect you with in tandem to working with us as an organization. I want to turn something, I think it's fairly similar to that, that in your, you did a video recently and you talked about DEI. And I think you alluded to it earlier. Tell us what that is and exactly what it means. DEI stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you'll hear, it's definitely a buzzword, buzz phrase coming out the past couple of years, and especially this year, that organizations are taking on to really take a close look at how their company culture and how our our nation's culture does or does not create Spaces of belonging for all people. Okay. I'll stop there. We can you can ask probing questions too, but that's <laughs> <laughs> that's where I'll stop for now. I'm trying to figure out how to say it, how to talk about these things, because I'm I'm looking at it and I see the overlap with perhaps some intersectionality in there. There's the idea of being open for everyone, including everyone. And then there's the idea of, well, how do you say it? Being all right with everyone. There are two different things, I'm tr- what I'm trying to get at. And because you did talk about diversity of thought, so people can have diverse thought patterns as well. So I'm wondering exactly how far, is that, how far that goes. Perhaps somebody is not on board with I, I I almost hate to go here, but I'm going to do it. Not on board with uh, same-sex marriage. However, mm-hmm. they're fine with working with someone with same-sex who is of a, in a same-sex relationship. That's not the issue. So they're fine with it being included in, in society, in the corporate world. That's not the problem. It's just I'm not going to push it, or this person is not going to push it and not going to celebrate it. Yeah. That's okay. When it becomes a problem is when you are taking action that results in oppression of that person because of the way they choose to live their life. People have religious beliefs that denounce homosexuality. Do I agree with it? No. (laughs) I think it's the right approach. But but if you believe so deeply in your religion and your religion tells you that's not okay— there's a difference between actual persecution of that person who has a different belief than you and not my, not my thing, but you live your life the way you want to live your life. And that includes 
voting for policies that allow others to live their life lives the way they want to. And so that's, that's the delineation is when you can feel those things. You can, you can have your beliefs. I would say when it comes to just let others live their lives too, you have power there and you can either help, help that person's experience and access and equality, or you can detract from it. And so I think that it really boils down to, even as you said at the beginning, this, this idea of mutual respect. You don't have to like what I choose to do with my life, but you have to respect me as a person and you have to not oppress me. What is oppress? Could you define that uh, in all the different facets that go into this? Yeah. So oppression is really the idea of malicious or unjust treatment or like an unfair exercise of power over someone. So I have power over you. I have power that you don't have. And so I'm going to use that power to make sure you stay below me. When we do that, it really does. When I teach about, when I teach classes on DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, that inclusion piece It includes things like bias, recognizing your own unconscious bias. It includes privilege, not necessarily just white privilege, because there are so many different types of privilege. And it includes the concept of power, because that's what I think is missing in a lot of these conversations is the power you hold over someone, whether it's because you're their manager or it's because of the way you know our our government is created. They there are ways you can use your power for good and there are ways you can use your power for evil and oppression is the manifestation of using that power for evil. Well, I had a thought. I don't remember what it was now. Happens to me all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm giving you a lot. I'm throwing a lot at you. (laughs) And no, this is a great conversation. These are questions that I've had that I've wondered about. And this is the opportunity that we can talk about these because if you just talk to the average person in society and just ask them these random questions, I don't imagine it's going to go civilly. And that's why I appreciate that we can do this in a civil manner. Me too. We need more civilish conversations. (laughs) Civil-ish. Which means not necessarily agreeing or maybe agreeing, but doing it nicely. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm I brought it up, you talked about it, or maybe I talked about it. I can't remember. It was mostly me. And if you'll allow me, gay marriage, because there was something that, or same-sex marriage. One of the things you said, the idea of oppression involves holding someone back or causing harm. Now, harm is a term that I've heard with a lot of different definitions, more than I've ever ever heard in the past recently. So the idea of advocating for, let's say, a Judeo-Christian view on marriage is now termed harm and oppression. Is that Would that be true? Well, it's when you're using the viewpoint to prevent others from he- having equal access to the same opportunities. So you are permitted to get married. Other people should be permitted to get married. It doesn't matter to who. 
but but it is it is that ethical moral difficult conversation or difficult perspective to be in but i think when you're looking at it as the whole what is the adverse impact on your life directly versus the harm that you're causing by not letting others live their lives. I realize that I'm asking a lot of you right now and I appreciate you answering my questions. We're almost, we're, we're almost going to be done soon because we have put a lot out there. My last question before the other one, before the really last question, my last question <laughs> on this topic can I look at that based upon what you said and say that religious liberty is secondary to that? Yes. We are in a country that is designed allegedly to be free from religion, religious influence. We know we, we still do. We still have God in the Pledge of Allegiance, but the way we talk about it is there is there is supposed to be no religious impact influence directly on policies. Now, is that true? No, but it is, it should be. And it should, it's the way that we, we say we exist as a nation. I want to finish up and allow you to have the end here so with a bit about your company. Tell us how people can follow you and be involved in what you're doing. Awesome. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, people can find me on LinkedIn. That's where I say a lot of stuff when I when I find the time um, and the anger or excitement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's good stuff on there too. But LinkedIn, Sarah Becerra. I'm on Instagram. That's really my, my scrapbook of all that's going on in my life. So not a lot of nothing too crazy there. But And then my company, Sarah Becerra Consulting. I work primarily with clients that are looking to improve their DEI efforts, my background in learning and development, but specifically learning as a long-term strategic planning framework ties very closely into how I approach DEI from not just the quick wins, have an hour training on bias, but how do you actually create systemic change with highly energized people, deeply organized people, a plan to match the problem and the funding that's needed to actually make change. So I work with organizations that are committed to making change, not just having performative uh, occasional action, but want want to see long-term change and, and leave a legacy. So that you can find out more about my company too on LinkedIn and hit me up. I'm always on DMs, LinkedIn DMs, find me there. But I love, this is my favorite thing to talk about in the world. I could talk about it all day, but my kids miss me too much. So I have to go home sometimes. <laughs> uh, I love to to share share this work with others and we can do it if we, if we really all work together. Civilly, respectfully, we can definitely agree to disagree, but let's do it with, with some assumptions of positive at- intent. Thank you so very much, Sarah, for being here today. Thank you for sharing in this conversation. And it's been a real pleasure to have you on. Likewise. Thank you for having me, Johnny. It was great. Well, I told you that was going to be an interesting conversation with Sarah. I'd like to thank her, of course, for being here today. And 
as I have been thinking about this conversation, it's been on my mind a lot. What am I doing with this show? And this really, I think, helps to show what we're trying to do, what I'm trying to do. Because sometimes we agree with our guests. Sometimes we really disagree with our guests. But we do it respectfully. And we help to educate. Educate others exactly what the differences are. Realizing that there are differences, but at the same time, realizing that we want to uphold and cherish everyone's right to say those things. I disagree with what you say, but I affirm your right to say it. That's what we should be doing in society today and not canceling people out because we disagree with them. Thanks, and we will talk to you later. Thank you.